Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of If You Come This Far. I'm Sean. And uh, what we do on this podcast, my friend Chris and I have authentic conversations with interesting people about how they live their lives. And maybe we learn some stuff along the way, right, Chris? Hopefully. Um, and, and in this episode, uh, Chris and I had um, the pleasure uh, and opportunity of interviewing Matthew Quick, um, novelist, uh, author of, you probably know him best by um, his book and then the subsequent movie, Silver Linings Playbook. Uh, but but his folks reached out to us specifically about his book, We Are the Light, which, um, as, I, as I tell everyone, had me bawling. It was so good. Um, and he was nice enough to send us copies of all nine of his novels, which again, I'm, I think about halfway through and so, so good. So I'm, I'm a Matthew quick fanboy, and, uh, Chris, maybe, maybe tell our listeners a little bit more about our conversation. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's funny. You and I were talking about, um, I was, a, I was a little bit, um, starstruck when we got on this call with him because because i'm a fanboy too because because i did love silver lightning's playbook and i really love this new book um and i like what what he's about right and so i went into the call like thinking okay this is going to be one of my new bffs right <laughs> like yeah, this is really cool it's like speed dating um <laughs> Uh, and, um, and we had a great conversation. He was so gracious and generous with his, with his time. Mm -hmm. And we, we talked for, uh, nearly an hour and a half. Um, uh, uh, and we talked about, gosh, we covered a lot of ground. We talked about his writer's block, talked about alcoholism and, and being in recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, his book is focused a lot on Jungian analysis, which he has, um, practiced, he is. Uh, remember, I I, uh, uh, there, I learned a new word via this book, uh, the analysand, which mm. uh, is the uh, subject of Jungian analysis. Um, I mean, I think the Jungians made that word up, so I don't know if, if everyone uses <laughs> it. <laughs> um, but man, we talked about um, this idea in Jungian analysis of individuation, and, and which is which is very similar to a topic that you and I bring up almost with each episode of, of vocation yeah. and purpose. Mm -hmm. um, we just interviewed um, uh, Nico who wrote a book on, on purpose, you know, mm -hmm. like, why are we here? What are we supposed to be doing? So um, the point of all of this, I mean, let, let me hit on a couple other things. We yeah. talked about how he shows up in his stories. We talked about mm -hmm. the importance of tending to our own needs um, and, and asking for help, which is mm -hmm. a lot of, I think he wrote this book. This is not a guy that writes books to sell books and make movies. I think he's writing books because he has a he has something to say yeah. um, that he thinks is important. So men asking for help is is really prevalent in this whole thing. Um, and what I wanted to get to, we even talked. You may not remember this because it was a couple months ago that we had our conversation with Matthew. Do you remember right. uh, Harvey Weinstein coming up in the conversation? I did. I did. Yeah. <laughs> that's the first time that's happened. Uh -huh. um, but uh, in any case, all that to say is I, I went into the call thinking, I really like this guy already. And I left liking him more than I started. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't, I can't believe anyone um, listening to this isn't going to feel the same way. And, and again, I, I, as a fanboy, I would encourage, I mean, a fanboy of his, 
but his work, I mean, I would encourage everyone to, to go out and read his novels if you haven't done it. Um, I would also say that, that his, I think at least the books I've read so far, I think all of them are, um, uh, occur in, in or around Philadelphia where Matthew grew up. And even though he says, you know, I'm not really much of a sports guy anymore, it never goes. I don't think it ever really goes away. So he's he's either going to be very happy when this when this episode <laughs> airs, or he's going to be pissed off that Patrick Mahomes beat his Philadelphia Eagles. So right. Well, yeah, I I, I it's he he talks about and he talks about it in in the context of his um, recovery, and yeah. he used to associate his drinking with sports washing a lot, yeah. and vice versa. Right. But come on, man! When your when your childhood team is in the Super Bowl, right? You can't not pay attention, right? Right. Yeah. We'll we'll yes. call him on that. I did just send him an email saying, "Yeah, please tell me you're at least going to tune in to this game." So I'm tuning in. I think it's going to be a good game. I agree. Me too. Now that's and all I, I hope for. If your team is not in the Super Bowl, the 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 goal number one is to have a game that comes down to the final quarter, right? That's yes. what you want more than anything else. So. Well, and your team did, I mean, got beat by Kansas City, sadly, sadly. Uh, at the end. Um, so that they so they got stopped from being there two years in a row, which you know yeah. is unfortunate. But they'll they'll be back. Yeah. I well, I yeah. hope so. You you your your ex coach is uh, on the Bengals coaching staff, right? So that's right. Former coach, so yeah, we hope that he'll be he'll be on our <laughs> roster soon too for a conversation. For sure. Uh, but anyway, uh, Matthew Quick is a gem and a mensch, I think, uh, and um, also one of my dearest friends. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew's going to, if he listens to this, he's going to be like, oh boy. Oh, shit. A couple of, a couple of stalkers. <laughs> uh, here's, here's Matthew Quick. Let's do it. Now I don't. Now I don't know. I I, I signed up for Matt's your your personal letter today, and uh, oh, and you. I read and I read some of the the old ones, and you were talking about how your brother had had. I think you said blew off the Eagles game to go to, to go to one of your talks. Are you yeah. still an Are you still an Eagles fan? I have not watched any sports for about two years now. Okay, right. and uh, I got I got sober four and a half years ago, and mm-hmm. I found that. Um, sports and drinking went hand in hand and I did plenty of both of those things. And I'm not quite sure. I'm still processing my, you know, is it that I I only watched sports because it was a a great way to, to drink um, in a socially acceptable way for 12 hours on a Sunday, you know, or, or it was it just, um, yeah, I don't know. But I, I found that the further I've moved away from my drinking days, the less interest I have in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was, you know, I was a huge Eagles fan. I was a big sports guy, yeah. but it's just, it's not been as important to me. And, you know, some of the work that I've been doing lately is just really trying to get down and to figure out who, who am I? And I think sports mm-hmm. for me was a way as a young person to relate to my father who I, and my grandfather who were not easy guys to relate to it was like kind of an easy access ramp into their world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I haven't, I haven't unpacked that fully, but I think I needed some space away from sports to kind of understand my relationship with them in the, the past, you know, 50 years. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
I got to say, uh, Sean and I were super excited when we learned that you might want to join us for this podcast. And frankly, we thought it made a lot of sense because you know we spend a lot of time on this podcast, which is only a couple years old, talking about the themes that I think show up in your book and the themes mm. that seem to be important to you these days. Like now that we're talking about that stuff, connection, sure. healthy masculinity, uh, uh, mental health, mental illness. Um Asking for help, I think, is is a big one that comes out in the book. Um, before we get into all that stuff, I know that you, I know you want to sell books because you want to sell books, but also because I feel like it's part of your vocation right now or your, your sort of yeah. mission in life. Yeah. So I do want to at least give you the opportunity to, to to tell our listeners, you know, kind of what what this book is to you or to 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 the reader. Yeah, that's that's a question I could probably talk for four hours on that. That's what I figured. <laughs> so, that's what I figured. So, we got a lot of juice uh, to cover. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll, I'll just, you know, my, my book is We Are the Light. Here it is. And I've been trained to to hold it up in all of these podcasts. And, you know, this book was um, a very difficult book to write. I started trying to, oh, there it is. Fantastic. Yeah. I started trying to write it in 2014. And, um, I couldn't, you know, it's, I just, it would not come, uh, for, for many reasons we can get into if you want, but after I got sober in 2018, I entered into this period of, of just crippling writer's block. And, you know, when I say writer's block, I'm, I mean, I sat down right here at the desk I'm at right now and I would try for eight hours to type a sentence and fail every day for years. Um, and, I, I'm somebody who who has always been able to write very quickly, you know, and what I pump out every day isn't always good, but it, it wouldn't be unusual for me to put out 15 pages in a day. And so to not be able to write a sentence was, it was emasculating. It was, it was devastating and it just crushed my ego. Um, and I'd also been someone who had been going around literally the world talking about mental health and telling particularly men that uh, if you have problems, there's no shame in reaching out. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no stigma. Um, but the one person who wasn't doing that was me. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was treating my my mental health. Uh, I, I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of self stuff. But you know, primarily, I used alcohol, and uh, that worked for a long time for me. And it really helped with my anxiety and depression. So back to the book, I I, I kind of lone wolfed it for three years where um, I just, I I took up running and I started running obsessively and I lost a lot of weight and I was able to stop drinking. And it was a weird time for me because externally, I I started looking really healthy and the best I'd I'd looked in years. Mm -hmm. So everybody was saying to me, man, like you're killing it. Like you look great. You've lost all this weight, but inside it was the worst I'd ever been. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was not running to try to look good. I was running because there was something screaming inside of me and I just wanted to, to just exhaust myself. So I didn't have to listen to the screaming. I was literally trying to run away from my problems. And so in the midst of this, you know, things got so bad, you know, at the end of the year, I'd show 10 pages to my wife and she'd cry because they were so bad. You know, she was so worried about me and she introduced me to this podcast called this young in life. And I had always been really young, curious, and uh, I started listening to it and I binged it and I decided that I was going to go into Jungian analysis. And so 
when I did that, it was with the idea that I might go in for a couple of weeks and, you know, fix my writer's block. Um, yeah, but yeah. I, I did, I did not know that I was entering into this, this commitment that was going to go on for years. And so one of the things that happened early on was that I started working with an older man and he was impossibly kind to me. And it was one of the first times that I was meeting with an older man on a regular basis where I thought that that older man 100% had my best interests at heart mm. and was really working with me. And there was no judgment. And it was, you know, to be honest, it felt almost uh, loving, you know, and, and the bad part inside of myself immediately said, oh, this can't be real. Like, this is going to be taken away from me, you know? And I started getting paranoid about my analyst dying or, you know, I was going to say something wrong in in an analytic session and he would say, you're fired or, you know, I'm out of here. You know, all the abandonment issues. And so somewhere along the way, about a year in, I started thinking about, well, can I do what I always do and take my paranoia to the creative writing wrestling ring and try to wrestle this down onto the page? And and so I wrote a book about um, this man whose name is Lucas Goodgame, and he experiences this horrific tragedy in a movie house. And after the tragedy, the whole town proclaims him a hero, uh, but he does not see himself as a hero. And at his worst moment, he reaches for his analyst that he has this great relationship with, and the analyst ghosts him on page one. And it's all about what is he going to do to get through this tragedy without the analysts and how's he going to heal? And so that was my, my greatest fear at the time. And so, you know, that's pretty much what I do is I take my mental health issues and I try to make art out of them. Uh, so, so, I, so I'd, I'd like to, uh, as you talk about your relationship with your therapist, I, I, is it okay if I read an excerpt from the book that, that is um, I think really powerful as it relates to that? Is that yeah, okay? sure. Yeah. So, cool. so you write in it. Lucas is um, sharing some of his thoughts with his therapist, and um, what he says is, um, other than Darcy, no one ever said "I love you" to me before, not with sincerity. But then, as we spent two hours together every Friday night, I started to get better, and I began to understand what you meant when you said your soul could love my soul because it's everyone's soul's purpose to love. Just like it's the job of our lungs and nose to breathe and our mouths to chew and taste and our feet to walk. As we banked more and more Friday nights together, I started to believe you actually did love me, not in a sexual way or a friend way. You love me the way the best of a human being naturally loves the best of any and every other human being once you remove all the toxic interference. Mm -hmm. um, just, I mean, six pages in. And, and, and we're getting something like that. And I just, I just really felt that was powerful. I mean, I'm going to be sharing that with our, our email distribution list on Wednesday to just say, Hey, thank you. Know, you. This is, uh, you know, need words of inspiration here or some. So I just, you know, I just want to say thanks for that. And I don't know if that was part of what you were trying to convey in your relationship with your older man therapist, but um, yeah, yeah I, I just thought those absolutely. are great words. Yeah. And, you know, the analytic experience for me was one of, um, you know, I was very low when I came into the experience. And, you know, I think when you're low, some of your defenses are always, um, it's not me, it's all those other people out there. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've been telling the story about how I never used to love going to the airport 
And so when, when I would go on a tour, or I had to go out for business. It was always hood up, sunglasses on, earbuds in, block out the world. And, mm-hmm. and I'd go to the airport and everyone in the airport felt really reflexively hostile. And it felt like this really hostile place. And, you know, through the work I did with my analysts, um, he really pushed back on a lot of that paranoia. And through him showing up every week and us having this this really wonderful relationship, I started to to reach out to other people and kind of break out of my isolation. And, um, you know, on book tour this time around, I went into it with this idea that, you know, everybody in the airport has love and light in them. And so no sunglasses, no hood, no earbuds, you know, try to look people in the eye, try to smile. And it was remarkable because the airport was a very friendly place all of a sudden, (laughs) you know, and I tell that story because, you know, everybody's stressed out in the airport, but I think what you're bringing to it, you know, you're projecting so much in the world. And so when I talk about toxic interference, you know, I think it's amazing you know, I, I, and I did this at the airport, you know, the people I was smiling at nine out of 10 people were smiling back at you. Nine out of 10 people were, you know, interested in having a, a, a good human experience. Nine out of people will connect with you when you bring the best of yourself and they'll offer the best of yourself back. I think when we get sick or when we get tired or when life beats us down, we forget that and we start putting out a different vibe. And that's what we see in the world. When we're angry, we see angry people. When we're sad, we see sad people. But I think when we're clear and we're healthy and we project that, we start seeing that in other people too. And I think that's what we, what I mean. You know, I think little kids, you know, if they haven't been abused, you, you know, throw them together, they find a way to work things out. And, you know, I was just around my nephews last weekend or four and seven. All they want to do is, is hug you and tell you how great you are if you're right. hugging them and tell, I mean, it's wonderful. Like the way that they're, they're just so built to love in this really wonderful way. And I think that as adults, we forget, and particularly men, you know, we forget as we get older and grizzled, you know, um, that we were built to love too, that we yeah. are worthy of, of receiving and accepting love. And so that was one of the things that I think my analysts helped me remember. And that's one of the things that I tried to carry forth as I went through the book tour this time. And I think it's one of the things that Lucas is, is literally using and hang clinging onto to stay alive. Like, I think that yeah. is what's literally saving his life in the book. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love the book. I've gone yeah. back and reread certain parts. Um, my, uh, I got my wife and my 14 year old daughter to, to rewatch Silver Linings Playbook, which I haven't read yet. Apologies, but we did rewatch uh, that. You can and... remedy that ASAP <laughs> anytime <laughs> you want. <laughs> Is there a place I can go? Um, yeah. But, um, but anyway, that same 14 year old daughter then wanted to listen to this book on the way to and from school. And oh, she's wow. been loving it too. It's really cool. That's great. And there's a lot of things I love about it. Um, I think the, for me, the thing that I love the most is like this unfiltered glimpse into the head of someone who's struggling and who needs help. Yeah. Um, and, you know, most of us are not as eloquent as Lucas is or as you are. Um, and But every human is in need. Someone sent me recently via text one of these sayings. It's some version of, you know, who's really going through some difficult shit right now? Literally everybody. <laughs> That's so, true. Yeah. So be kind. The, the where I want to go with this though is um it sounds to me, Matthew, like I, I'd be interested in hearing your history of asking for help. Cause it sounds to me like you didn't maybe get really good at it until you were in your forties. Yeah, you know, um you know, I grew up in a, a blue collar neighborhood outside of Philadelphia and 
that was a lot of, around a lot of men in my family were the men I was closest to were war vets. My father wasn't, but my uncle was, and my grandfather was, and, you know, there were these broken men that loved in broken ways. And one of the things that I kind of intuited as a young man was that there were a lot of adults with a lot of needs around me. And so the thing that I learned was don't have needs. And that was the way to survive, you know, don't have any needs, be the person that solves other people's needs. And um, in my family, that was highly rewarded. So, um, you know, my my uncle was a Vietnam vet. I, I became his de facto, like, confidant at a very young age. And, and I was listening to his war stories. And, you know, that re- resulted in a book that I wrote called uh, The Reason You're Alive, which is very personal to me. But I think back sometimes about listening to those stories when I was in my early 20s and, you know, thinking about how those roles were kind of reversed. And then, of course, I got into teaching, um, you know, the helping professions. And, uh, you know, I became this this kind of unofficial counselor for for young teenagers. So I became almost a therapist. I was an English teacher, but I was also someone that um, the, the kids would come to. And that was encouraged by by the administration. Um, And so, you know, again, I learned as a teacher that my role was not to have needs. It was to go into that classroom and take care of everyone else's needs. And Mm. um, I think, you know, if you work in the public school district, you you learn not to have needs very quickly because no one's going to take, you know, you, you just have to, there's a bunch of saints working in the high school, you know, and they just, they just don't get credit. Um, But I, I had, kind of a burnout moment in my late twenties, uh, where, you know, I think I was a pretty good teacher and on, on book tour, even, even all these years later, I stopped teaching in 2004 and I, I had former students showing up in San Francisco and in South Jersey, you know, moved me almost to tears to see these kids mm-hmm. coming out. All, after, well, they're not kids anymore. They're adults, but mm-hmm. to see them come out after all these years. But, um, I think one of the things that I had to learn in that my anxiety and depression kept trying to teach me over the years, over and over again, is that I have needs, you know, and and everybody has needs. Mm -hmm. And there were some really broken places inside of me. And I think that ironically, or maybe not, you know, I think that that was a, a drive inside of me that, that made me go the extra mile when I was teaching and I definitely think that's what drove me to start writing. And so it's a gift and a curse. You know, most of the novelists that I know personally did not have great childhoods, <laughs> you know, and even even most of my heroes had horrific childhoods. And mm. I think the art sometimes comes from this longing for acceptance and love. And um, that can be rocket fuel. Uh, that can really propel you. And that's the thing that in my thirties would allow me to sit down at a computer for 14 hours a day, seven days a week, and just keep going and going and going. But I think my body and my soul, my psyche, the whole time were saying, you are worthy of love. You are worthy of getting help. And I would say, nope, I'm just going to drink that message away, you know, and just keep drinking that away. And it wasn't until my body started breaking down and betraying me that I was forced to really listen to that message. And I think also I had this idea that, you know, if I could 
I don't know, accomplish some of the accolades that I have. Like if I could be a New York Times bestselling author, or if I could go to the Oscars somehow, that would fix my problems. But, you know, it's a cliched story, but you you mm-hmm. get to those mountaintops and and you're the same person. And it's like, uh-oh, <laughs> I went to the Oscars and I still feel this awful thing inside of me or uh-oh, you know, I'm a New York Times bestselling author now and I feel actually worse than before, uh, Yeah, you know? So it was... I wouldn't say that my reaching out for help was, was um, heroic. I think I lost this long war of attrition. You know, it was this long um, thousand paper cuts, you know, killing you to the point where I just didn't have any other options anymore. And it was a horrific couple of years, those writers, but it was the lowest I've ever felt, but it was also um, a gift because I needed that help and I finally got it. And in the Jungian work that I do, my analyst is always talking about how in modern society, when we have depression or anxiety, we think, oh, how do we get rid of that as fast Mm -hmm. as possible? Instead of saying, what is that anxiety and depression telling us? What is the purpose Mm -hmm. of that? And so I think with the drinking, it was always, you know, I can get rid of that at the end of the day and I can go to sleep but I'm just numbing myself. I'm not listening to to the story or the wisdom of what that anxiety and that depression is trying to tell me. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm trying to listen. And that that has been transformative in many ways. So if you, if you and I would have had this conversation like in 2016, do you think you would have, if you were completely opening up, you think you would have told me that you didn't think you needed help from a therapist or from AA or from whatever, and that part of the help you needed was just coming to that realization? Or do you think th- you were just didn't want to go that route? I think I was scared to go that route. I wouldn't have told you that. I think I would have said, you know, I, I have, um, I was, I was friends with people in the mental health community. And so I had these friendships that I kind of used almost in a therapeutic way, which is entirely inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would have said, Oh no, I have these people I talk to and I've read, I, I do a lot of reading. And, and to be honest, I was always working on my mental health from a point of view that I read a lot about mental health that um, I was constantly talking about it, but I wasn't really doing the deep internal work. Like I wasn't, mm-hmm. I wasn't looking at the broken places inside of myself. I wasn't being honest. And I think that, you know, it's talk about positive masculinity, but there's just toxic masculinity. You know, I, I grew up in an environment where you toughed it out, you know, you, mm-hmm. and again, like I wasn't supposed to have needs and um, the men in, in my life were, were very stoic. Um, they were very, you know, you, you didn't complain about things. You, you toughed it out. You, d- you weren't supposed to have emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. And I was from a kid, an incredibly sensitive person, you know? And so that was always a gift because I could read people. I could feel other people's emotions. You know, I, I knew what to say to comfort people, but again, it was always, like it felt, it would have felt really transgressive and selfish for me to put myself first. And to say, oh, no, I, I've got to do the work for me first. It was always the frame would have been, no, my job is to heal other people. You know, my mm-hmm. job is to write these books for other people. My job is to start a conversation. My job is to be the leader, the teacher, mm-hmm. the healer. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize that the most essential thing that I needed to do so that I could 
sustain the work I was doing was to take care of myself first. That old adage of put the oxygen mask on yourself mm -hmm. first before the next person. I, I didn't think I needed oxygen. You know? And I think that was, that was an inflation, you know, and I think it was necessary. It was a defense. Um, but in my alcoholism and in, in my earlier years, I didn't have the space psychologically to, or I didn't have the luxury of, of thinking about myself. It just wasn't in my DNA at the time. And I think I needed to be broken in a way that that became undeniable because, you know, my, my analyst talks about how psyche just shut me down. It just wouldn't let me do anything mm -hmm. um, because my ego strength it was always like, I'd find a way to pull through. I'd find a way I would torture myself masochistically, do anything. I'd outwork people just to get through and get the job done. And that served me really, really well for a long time until it didn't. And I think when psyche shut me down, it was like, I think it was a kindness because it was a message of stop being so cruel to yourself, stop being so masochistic. You don't have to live this miserable lifestyle um, or this this uh, self-sacrificing way that I, I do think was a form of masochism. I think it was a form of self-hate in a lot of ways. I would not have packaged it that way. I would never have in 2016, I would never have said that to you, but I think subconsciously there was something going on in me that I had to unpack through analysis. So, so I'm really curious in, uh, I think what Silver Linings was, was published in 2010, maybe. Is that uh, right? I think it was 2008. 2008. So, yeah. so I'm curious. So as you were going through the process of writing that book and, you know, Pat, the protagonist is certainly dealing with a lot of mental health issues. Well, how, how were you, I mean, we're talking now, you know, 10, 10 12 years, years later. Yeah. Yeah. I wrote how, it in 2006. The, yeah. So, yeah. At that time, how were you processing you in writing about Pat? I mean, was it, was it totally separate or were you like, okay, I'm, I'm seeing myself in this character. How was that evolving to, to 10, 12, 15 years later where you're like, okay, now is the time for me to, um, be more self-aware and be and understand that I've got to make some changes. Well, I think when I wrote Silver Linings, it was a young man. I was drinking heavily. I mm. was living with my in-laws. I had no money. I had mm. sold my house to pay for my MFA. And um, I was very lonely. And I, I was in grad school. I was writing these very literary type novels and they weren't doing well. And so I started writing Silver Linings in secret and I didn't show it to my advisors. It was my it was my own personal kind of project that I did on the side. Mm -hmm. And I was lonely for Philly and I was lonely for my friends that I went to the Eagles game with. And I said, I I'm just going to write a story about going to the Eagles game with guys I know that would have been in my neighborhood that talked the way that, that the guys that I hung out with talked. And it was just this kind of thing that snowballed. And all of a sudden I was working on it all the time but I, I never thought I was going to publish it. You know, I thought it was just like this side hustle. And then halfway yeah. through the writing, I started to realize, wait, this might be the best thing I've ever written mm -hmm. and I've got to finish it. And so I remember I finished it right before I gra graduated from Goddard and I gave it to my wife and I said, just read this. I'm going to go up to Goddard and she was going to meet me for my graduation. And when you get there, tell me what you think. And 
I remember meeting her in the parking lot. It was, there's snow everywhere in Vermont. And she just came and gave me this hug and she said, this is the best thing you've ever written. You've got to publish this. And so again, I started sending it out to um, agents and, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I had no idea. I had no contacts, you know, and more than 70 agents rejected it, you know, and yeah. it, 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 like, almost, and then I finally found my agent and he very quickly sold it at auction in Italy and they sold the movie rights. And it was this moment where it was like, Whoa, what's, what's happening? Like it didn't feel real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then we, we, we sold it to FSG and Sarah Crichton. And there was this, there's this time afterwards where I, I was stricken with fear. Like it was the, the six months before I published Silver Linings were probably six of the worst months of my life. I was drinking heavily. I couldn't go out in public because I had kind of tricked myself into writing about my mental health, yeah. but I never thought anybody was ever going to read it. Wow. And then people were paying me a lot of money for it. And it was, yeah. it was this thing that was going to be very public. And I'm a, I'm a deeply introverted person. Mm-hmm. And I think when I was writing it, you know, in the, in the novel, Pat's injury is brain trauma. And my first job out of college was working in a lockdown unit with people that suffered brain trauma. So I think I was thinking, well, I'm just, it's not really me, you know, but when it was time to publish, it was like, wait a minute, there's a lot of stuff about me in, in this book, even though Pat Mm -hmm. is fiction. And it was, it was scary, you know, and I think there was a need for me to, to start processing this and being more public about it but it was terrifying. And I remember when the book came out, um, some of my buddies that went to the game with me at the time, they came and talked to me very privately and said, Hey, you know, I see you're writing about this mental health stuff. Like me too. You know, I've, I've never mm-hmm. told you about this. Mm-hmm. And, and I started to see that it was this gateway to talk yeah. about these things that um, I was very deeply uncomfortable talking about. And then all of a sudden was movie came I became the mental health guy you know I was thrust into people were paying me to talk to hundreds of people about mental health and I was like wait a minute I've I've never done any work on my own mental (laughs) health and so you just kind of you know you you bumble your way through and you know the the problem with that was that I was I was really good at it and Mm. um I'm deeply introverted but I can be a fake extrovert for a finite amount of time And nobody believes that when I'm on stage, nobody, nobody sees how much it costs. They don't see the anxiety before and after, because I'm very, very good at hiding that. And so it would snowball because I would do really well at an event. And then afterwards I would fall apart. But then the people were like, he's amazing. Book him again, or, you know, get him out. And so there was this secret, you know, and so it, it, it was profitable to hide it and I was rewarded for hiding it. Um, and it was ironic and, you know, it was, um, it was it was interesting. This episode of If You've Come This Far is being brought to you by our friends at Half Acre Beer Company, makers of Daisy Cutter Pale Ale and many other fine ales and lagers. Visit them at their brewery located at 2050 West Balmoral Avenue in Chicago's Bowmanville neighborhood. Now back to the show. We have the light that you just finished, I guess, at the end of November, maybe. Um, were you excited for that tour? Was that, I mean, you mentioned, you know, going on, going on the planes and that was different for you. Yeah. Was it the same for doing the book tour for engaging with fans? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was really great. You know, it was, it was, I felt like I was more present there. I did not have 
I had some anxiety. I had some anxiety in, in the beginning, but I think throughout it was a much more pleasurable experience. Um, and I think that it was it was easier being four plus years into sobriety was was a lot more stable going into this time around. And um, you know, I, I felt that I could engage with people in a deeper level as well. But you know, I'm not going to lie. As an introvert, there, there is a cost for going yeah. out on tour, and there, there always will be. And you know, I, there's no there's no amount of work that you can do to change you know your personality. But I think I'm much more aware of that now, and I know how to take care of myself much better. Real quick, Chris, one I, you mentioned earlier about you know your running that you did you you, you took on running. Uh, again, an interesting parallel. I mean, Pat's running, I don't know, 10, 10 miles a day right? <laughs> yeah. in the book. Yeah. Was there, was there any connection to that at all? Did you recognize, well, wait, all of a sudden I'm using, I'm running so much. Was there parallels to what was happening? You know, well, years when I ago? first, I, I always ran a little bit, yeah. you know, but I was not a serious runner back when in the silver linings days. Um, yeah. You know, I would I would go out for a run once in a while, but it wasn't intense. When I when I got sober, I started running serious miles and keeping time. Yeah. And you know, I lost sixty pounds. I did a couple yeah. half marathons, so it became much more obsessive at that point. Um, and now I, I I don't run as much as I used to. Um, and so I think the the running was kind of and this is not uncommon. It was you know, they, I traded alcoholism for yeah. running, you know, right. this yeah. for a while, why I needed yeah. that to happen. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned all the themes that we cover on our podcast and our men's group. At the end of the day, though, our podcast is what we're, what we're hoping to do is have conversations with people who are giving some thought and doing some work into making life more meaningful. Yeah. Right? Like taking advantage of this one turn you got. Yeah. Um, and I know a little bit about young Ian analysis just because i started looking at it because i was interested in what where, where you're coming from and i see this idea of individuation right yeah um to me it sounds a little bit like vocational work like why are you here what were you put here for i could be off on that but i i i want to ask you the question like are you as a 48 year old um are you have you changed over the, especially the last five really formative years, how you're thinking about your purpose for, for life? Like what is your vocation now? Is it to just write novels or is it to write novels that might reach people? Blah, blah, blah. That's yeah. a sloppy, sloppy question. Sorry. No, no, it's a good question. I think it's a work in progress. You know, I'll start by saying individuation in, in Jungian work is, is kind of like enlightenment in Buddhist work in that, it's a goal. It's something to shoot for. And, um, you know, only the special people actually achieve it. Uh, but the the work and what you're always trying to move towards is knowing yourself on a deep soul level. Like who were you meant to be when you came into this world before you were told to be someone else and you crewed all the hits and the damage and the fear. And, and so that, that is, that is a work in progress. Um, I, I'm nowhere near answering that question but i'm also i've also been taught to really pay attention to what lights you up and i read a great book earlier i think it was in the summer by richard Rohr called falling upwards mm -hmm. and he talks a lot about how particularly in in the Jungian world too this is this is very much about masculinity 
how the first half of life is really about ego work. And, you know, you're trying to build up your ego. So you have this drive in the career. And if you're lucky, and Jung said this, if you're, if you're lucky and somewhere in your early 40s, you'll have a spectacular fall and the ego, ego will be shattered. And that's the time to do the soul work. And if the ego is not shattered, if you never have that breakdown or that fall, why would you ever change what you're doing? Mm. You know, just keep doing ego forever. So to me, you know, soul work really means, um, you know, there there are goals on a tour such as selling books and, um, you know, trying to get movie deals and stuff like that. And, you know, believe me, I'm still interested in those things, but paying attention to what's really lighting me up on the tour. So, you know, for example, this time around, there were a lot of young men that were showing up um, at the events. And particularly, there weren't a lot of them at each event, but at every event, there was one or two. Mm -hmm. And they seemed to really lock in on some of the things I was talking about, particularly the sobriety stuff, um, the stuff about positive masculinity. And talking with them afterwards, it, it felt deeply meaningful you know the work i've been doing with with my analysts and an older man and then to to be passing some of that on through these talks felt really gratifying it lit something up inside of me and i think it harkened back to my teaching days um there was one event in austin texas where there were two young men uh, working cameras and they were filming and afterwards they came up to me and they, uh, during my talk, they kept laughing and joking, kind of winking at each other. I thought they were making fun of me, to be honest. And uh -huh. they made a beeline for me afterwards. And they said to me, you know, listen, like, we don't know who you are. We've never read your books. Like, you know, we, we never even knew your name, but we're so glad we were here mm -hmm. because we're both recently sober. And, you know, men don't talk about the things that you're talking about. And we're so hungry for that. And I could see that they had what Robert Bly would refer to as father hunger. But yeah. they made this comment that like just about crushed me. Um, and they said to me, they said, it's so good to see members of the elder generation giving back to the youth. <laughs> it's like this moment where I was like, am I a member of the elder generation? But then it kind of hit me that I am. You know, yeah. that like I am at this point where these young men are looking at me as someone that is potentially a father figure or someone that's that's accrued some knowledge. And these young men are so hungry for older men to mentor them, to father them, to initiate them into manhood. And that that felt that call kept coming up over and over throughout the tour. And my book is very much about that, too. Yes. Um, you know, it's yeah. very much about these issues. And so. That is something that is an echo that I keep hearing. You know, I keep putting stuff out into the world and that that's what's echoing back to me. It's hearkening to me and it's lighting me up. And so I, I try to pay attention to that. I don't know that that is the thing that um, will bring in the most money or, you know, will yeah. reap the most rewards mm -hmm. in Hollywood. I don't think my publisher particularly cares about that, that part of the book tour. They care about how many books were sold. Right. But um to me, those those moments were deeply meaningful. Also, too, you know, as someone who I didn't go the AA route, you know, I I did lone wolf sobriety and then worked with an analyst afterwards to clean things up. People were coming through my signing lines that were saying the same story. I came with a friend. I didn't know who you were. I had no idea you're going to talk about these things. But mm -hmm. what you said about getting sober was so deeply meaningful. And I don't feel like I can share my story or people don't talk about this. One woman gave me her gold sobriety coin afterwards, like those types of experience. You realize that that wasn't why I wrote the book. 
but that's what the work became why I'm in the field, why I'm interacting with these people. And so, you know, some of these people didn't even buy a book. Like they didn't even say like, Hey, I'm going to read your book afterwards. They're saying, I found what you said here really meaningful and it helped me. And so realizing that that that's a soul win, you know, that, that is something that, that is probably more important than, than the business of things. And there's a balance, you know, you have to take care of both, but I find myself being more curious about those things lately and being more lit up by them and looking for opportunities to, to do that work, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. So real quick, Sean. So, so Matthew, I work in the education space in the nonprofit world yep. um, have ever since I recreated around Obama once like 15 years, I was in the military and the private sector before that. And mm. I've always thought that the, the two really good litmus tests about, you know, how you felt about how you were doing and therefore how closely you were to following your, your vocation was, Hey, how do you feel when you wake up in the morning? Are you excited to go to work? And then B, how much do you want to talk about what it is you're doing with your life? Mm. And I feel like, I feel like, um, you know, I didn't listen to you. I didn't read your books nor did I listen to you in 2015, 16, whatever, but I do feel like there's a really good energy um, that's really positive coming from, and it's so genuine. Like I feel oh, like you're speaking you. from such a such a personal, uh, vulnerable place. So, um, my guess is you're you're getting real close to that sort of ideation thing, or individuation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. individuation. I, I hope so. I'm hope I'm trending in the right direction. But that's all you can hope for, right? Yeah, and I think you know it was it was hard earned. You know that that kind of three year dark night of the soul. Um, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but. I think you go through those tough times and you come out on the other side, you know, battle hardened. And for me, it was, you know, the stuff that I'm talking about, or even the stuff that's in the book, it was, it's stuff that I, I feel hundred percent on, you know, it's not, yeah. it's not something I haven't tested out. So uh, first of all, the people that came to your, your book tour and didn't buy a book, they're missing out. So if you're listening, <laughs> thank you. you I appreciate one, go, go back and get one. Cause it's outstanding. Nice. Um, you know, talking about being vulnerable. I, so was it two weeks ago? So we, we had started reading the book and then I saw Chris, he wasn't done and I was done. And I saw him, I'm like, I'm bawling reading this book. I'm reading this book yeah. and I'm not going to reveal anything to you, but I'm bawling. Um, uh, just, you know, I'm, I don't want to reveal anything, but I want you to know that, um, you know, the relationship between Lucas and Eli was, was, was beautiful. And it really kind of was at the end when he learns about Eli's senior project that I just, I just, uh, lost it. Um, I just thought that was really, that was really beautiful. Um, Thank you. Thank you. and then, and then, you know, his interaction with Jill's mom, I thought that was, that was really, really impactful too. So those were, those were two, two moments when you had me at least two, that. when you had yeah. me, had me in tears. Um, I don't know if Chris is going to divulge, you know, when he was tearing up, but, uh, I was, I was actually, when I was, I'm sorry to say when I was, re, re, we have some work being done in the house. I, I was reading the end and, and he learns about Eli's senior project and there's a knock on the door. I'm sobbing. I'm sobbing. <laughs> like I got to go answer the door for these construction workers. They're going to make a good <laughs> Yeah. What is up with you? I'm an emotional man. That's what's up with me crying. Yeah. yeah. So it was really, yeah. Oh, I thank really, you. Thank really you. enjoyed that. 
Yeah, I, I did a bunch of crying writing it. So, and, and particularly mentioning the scene um, with Jill's mom is, yeah. thank you for that. Not too many people have mentioned that scene. That's a scene that was yeah. deeply personal to me. It was in the kitchen. It was really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, I, w- I wanted to ask about something that take away from me is, is having read Silver Linings and then this book, um, both of the protagonists, um, are working through their own relationship, working through their own issues with a relationship, mm-hmm. uh, a, 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 um, with their wives, let's say, yep. let's just yep. say it without revealing anything. Is there something about that relationship showing up in both of these books that is something you're, you're trying to, that you're exploring in similar ways in both books? Yeah, I think I think so. Um I was in really different head spaces with both of those books. I'm sure. But I, yeah. but I think uh you know, I I've, I've been with the same woman since I've been 19. You know, I met my right. wife when she was 17. So we we we've, we've been together and solid the whole time. But I do think that um because of my upbringing, uh, my relationship with the feminine has had been difficult at times mm. and you know trying to orient to the feminine in a proper way uh has been a lot of the work that i've been doing in jungian analysis you know mm. and you know i think my parents and i love my parents so i was at their house last week and we're on pretty good ground now um but you know they were little more than children when they had me, you know, and, and they, yeah, they didn't right. get really good playbooks from their parents. And, you know, I think they did the best they could. And, but, you know, there was, um, they, they passed a lot of generational trauma down to me. And, and, and I've talked about this with my parents. And so I think I had a lot of work to do. Um, you know, my mom was, was somebody who was, was on top of things and like things very orderly and it liked to like to have a lot of control over us. And, you know, as a young man, that was particularly damaging, particularly in my, my teen years, you know? And so I think my characters are a lot of times men that are, that are doing their best to try to reorient to the feminine and figure out what does it mean mm-hmm. to be a man? Um, and they're, they're not, these guys are going to react in a way, well, besides my book, The Reason You're Alive, which is something different, but for the most part, they're not going to react by um, bulldozing over women. You know, they're not going to be kind of aggressive. They go inward, like they kind Mm -hmm. of punish, they withdraw inward. And so I think that um, for me, that's always been the challenge, you know, not to withdraw, like to interact. And so that's the work I'm doing now. And I think that's the work that Lucas needs to do in the book. You know, he goes to this awful tragedy and he loses the one woman in his life that makes sense. And he immediately elevates her into the divine feminine. He makes her into this psychological goddess. Mm -hmm. And that's a compensation that he needs at the time. But the work is how to, how to engage with the feminine in real time with Jill and Sandra Coyle and Mm -hmm. these women that are, are just being who they are, but feel very threatening to Lucas. Yeah. And so I think that is, that is the work that I've been doing. And I think there's a work a lot of men need to do, frankly, and it's not easy work, um, no. particularly for, for men that are the tendency to be more passive or, you know, more sensitive about things and can quote unquote pass as being, you know, okay, men. Um, mm. But there could be a lot of things internally that are going on that if they're not addressed can, can result in problems later down the line. And so I think that's really what my 
particularly Pat and Lucas are both working on. They're these, these great men and the women in their lives like them because, you mm -hmm. know, they're not creating problems, but they don't have this proper relationship. Um, they're not, they're not in touch with healthy masculinity in, right. you know, my analysts would say that they're not accessing the good King within, you know, the, the archetypally there's the tyrant and the good King. Um, we all know what the tyrant looks like, but sometimes mm -hmm. we forget that there is the good King that can rule in a way that is just and fair um, and equitable, but also can rule and can, you know, can, um, access that healthy masculinity to accomplish things and create things that benefit everyone. Well, you talk, you talk a, a couple of times about Lucas finding his phallic energy or, yeah. you, you know, him, him helping Eli to find his phallic energy. Yeah. Is that what you're, is that what you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, phallic energy, you know, is, is something that we talk about in the Jungian world. It's in you know, this is, this is as old as time, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's something that we use to generate things. It's something that we use to, to thrust something into the world and, um, and to create, you know, and I think that that is important. And in the Jungian work that I do, it's very important to recognize that we have both masculine and feminine in us. And, right. you know, so women can have phallic energy um, sure. and, you know, so, and sometimes, one of the disappointing things in recent years is we try to clean up toxic masculinity when we demonize masculinity in general and we throw out the good with the bad, then women lose their access to the good mm -hmm. king as well. And so that that's also tragic. And yeah. so a woman who um, might be in the corporate world and is trying to rise might internally hate herself because she doesn't feel like she can be you know, use that kind of phallic energy to kind of get ahead. And, and that that's, that's also tragic. And Agreed. And on book tour, I've, I've come across a, a lot of women that have come to my signing line and say to me, you know, you know, women can have father hunger too. And I'm like, of course, you know, obviously, yeah. like I totally relate to what you're saying about father hunger. So there's a lot of women out there that are trying to orient to the masculine in a, in a positive way and have a difficult time with that. And I think mm -hmm. that's why we have, some of the friction that we do in, in modern society. And I think that's why, you know, the last couple of years is we're addressing toxic masculinity and rightly so we need to have those conversations. I think some of us get a little nervous because we're like, okay, like how many times are we going to hear toxic masculinity before we start hearing positive masculinity? Well, we we've had uh, Seth Hill or uh, Saeed Hill is a guest that we had on on the show from Northwestern, he and he runs the Northwestern men's program, and he talks about it as being restrictive masculinity from the standpoint yeah. of you know the conditioning that happens to us yeah. restricts us from from maybe being who uh, who we're supposed to be. Yeah, and I think that's a problem. And yeah. I think when you talk about you know at least in my experience, these young men that are coming out and. When I'm talking about these things, they're just glued on, they're just locked in. And I think really what they want is uh, permission to be themselves and permission, like, how, how do I contribute in a way that is positive, but also I can express the full essence of who I am, you know, in a really beautiful and positive way. And, and so I think that that's really true. You know, I think there's a lot of people that are hesitant and are not quite sure. Um, and and my analyst pushes back on this sometimes because I, I almost feel that men need permission. And I, I feel like we need women to give permission. And it, he he really struggles with that. But I think in in the the novel, 
when Lucas elevates Darcy to this level of goddess and she says to him, you know, the boy is the way forward, mm-hmm. you know, initiate mm-hmm. this young man. That That's when he feels, you know, he's in, in right relationship with the feminine and, and he becomes really this powerful agent in Eli's life. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, you know, we can't just do this as men on our own. You know, we have to be in right relationship with the feminine and the women in our lives. I think that's mm-hmm. really, really important to have that that balance because if yeah. we're not in right relationship with the women in our lives, we won't be in right relationship with the feminine inside of us. Totally agree. Yeah. I feel like yeah. there might be something in the Philadelphia water. Another <laughs> guest of ours is a Philly boy, uh, Jordan Shapiro, who wrote a book called How to Be a Feminist Dad. Oh, okay. Um, uh, which was really interesting. And a lot of what we talked about was gender norming. So there's like decades, if not centuries of of men being sort of like um, trained in a certain way. And, and yeah. I wanted to bring up one real uh, sort of uh, point for me that I took away from your book is like, we, we were talking earlier in this call about the older men in our families. Yep not feeling that it's okay to even even have problems. Mm-hmm. And I feel like their goal was to have suffering for them be invisible. Yeah. And at one point in the book, I think Lucas references where Carl had said that the goal was to make suffering meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. And and it sounds mm-hmm. to me I, I'm I was guessing I'm like that must be straight out of sort of the 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 academia of of Jungian analysis but I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more like what does that mean for us to make suffering meaningful Well I think for me it means to understand that this suffering has a purpose you know and I think from most well, I won't say that I think in our modern world we're given this message that we shouldn't ever suffer. We should never experience pain or unwanted feelings. Um, but in the Jungian world, you know, I'm taught to appreciate the purpose of suffering, you know, and it's not that I'm saying like, oh, I'm really glad that I was blocked for three years. Let's do that again. Like I'm super psyched to, to suffer. But that suffering came into my life for a very important reason. And it provided an experience that allowed me to write this book and allowed me to have this conversation with you tonight that I find deeply mm-hmm. meaningful. And I think mm-hmm. the difference is that in the past, if if I had had that suffering and said, hey, you know what, like I can uh, smoke some weed or I can get drunk or I can take some clonopin and make that suffering go away, then it's not meaningful. You know, it's just me erasing that suffering and trying to forget it. But I think in my Jungian work, it was like, okay, I have suffering. Let's go into the suffering. Let's go toward it. Let's feel it. Let's try to understand mm-hmm. what it means. Let's learn from it. And then let's let's make something useful out of that. And for me, that is what I do with my novels. It's what I try to do when I'm on tour and talking to people. And so it informs um, the things that I say. Uh, and you know, I, th- I think when people will comment and say, you know, this feels genuine to me, or this feels honest, or this feels real, it's because, well, I, I went through it, you know, I went through that process. Yeah. So you kind of earn the right to, to speak about things. I think there's also this, this idea of personally meaningful too. And, you know, for me, um, writing the book and then, going out and having these talks with people and somebody says, you know, Hey, reading your book made me feel less alone. 
Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, I get that a lot from the teens that read my YA books and particularly my book, Forgive Me, Leonard Peacock. I get emails and letters. Teenagers will say, I, this book saved my life. Like I was mm-hmm. going to kill myself. I read this book and I decided not to. And and so to me, you know, when I wrote that book so many years ago, uh, I didn't realize there'd be some two-year-old kid that would grow up into a teenager and write me 12 years mm-hmm. later. But um I was suffering and I was feeling a lot of pain and I had a lot of frustration. And so I wrote a book and I turned that into a piece of art that helped people through the dark night of the soul. To me, I find that very meaningful. Like that mm-hmm. feels purposeful and that feels better to me than, than, Oh, I, I feel really depressed. Let me go drink a bottle of scotch. You know, that, that did not feel meaningful to me. Yeah. That, that made me feel relief at the time. You know, that gave me a high, you know, that gave me um, relief from the pain but I woke up the next morning and felt guilty and awful. And I didn't say, oh, that night of drinking was meaningful. Mm-hmm. I felt ashamed of the night of drinking. And yeah. then I ironically did it again the next night. Um, but there was no meaning in that. Um, yeah. I never I never got to a point in my drinking where I said, ah, oh, now I feel purposeful and fulfilled. You know, Whereas with the art and the writing and conversations like this, um, when I'm in the, that battle and I'm in that moment, I say, you know, this is worth doing and I'm proud of this, or I feel it's at least I'm contributing in some way. And, and that has sustained me. So, uh, so your wife, Alicia is a, is a novelist as well. And I, and I'm curious about in your house, how do how do your processes, are they synced? Do they overlap? How do you, <laughs> how do you both, when the day starts and you're both writing, yeah, how, does, how, are how you does making that work? How are you making yeah. this marriage work, Matthew? Well, Alicia and I are very different writers, so I'll start by saying that. So, um, I'm a very intuitive writer. I'm more about big ideas, and uh, I feel that structure is an asset. I, I like delving into the psycho- psychology of characters. Alicia is more of a poet. You know, so mm. she's great on the sentence level and she's great at creating these images. And so the first thing I'll say is that because we have different strengths and weaknesses, we're really good editors for each other, which is you are. You, so yeah, you that, do edit each other's work. We do. In a sense. That, yeah. That is dangerous. I, I yeah. tell this story often, <laughs> but when I first decided to become a writer, um, I, my last act of being a teacher was chaperoning a trip to Peru. And we went to the Amazon jungle and there's a painter down there by the name of Francisco Gripa. And I had met him before and he really inspired me as a full-time artist. And so this next time when we took the kids to meet him, I told him, Francisco, I'm leaving teaching. I'm going to be an artist full-time. Like I'm making the job. He said, Oh, you know, this is great. He put his arm around me. Let's have a drink. Salute. You know, you're, you're in the writing life now. And then he looked over at my wife and, um, are you allowed to curse on this podcast? Yes. Or, yeah, you are. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. He looks over at Alicia and he says to Alicia, you know, well, no, what will you be doing while your husband is writing novels? And she says, oh, great, but I'm going to write novels too. And he's like, oh, and he looks at me and he says, you are fucked. <laughs> he goes, you are screwed. <laughs> and, and I was like, what does he mean? He just walked away. And um, I think what he meant is that it it takes so much to get one person through the creative experience. Mm. And there have been times when, um, particularly this year, where Alicia published a book in the summer and I published a book that you're drawing from the same reservoir of emotional fortitude, um, attention. Uh, so it can be very, very difficult 
to navigate that. I think Alicia and I have done that well, but there have definitely been rocky parts to that. And, um, you know, it's a lot of talking, it's a lot of honesty, and it's a lot of teamwork, but it's tricky. And even with some of my my really good writing friends is as somebody's career goes up and the others go down. Sometimes it's friendship strain. And so it's, there are not a lot of um, tickets to go around in the, the yeah. art world. Um, yeah. mm-hmm. And so it's, it's difficult and, you know, it's not always merit based, you know, there's a lot of luck involved. Um, so, so these things are very tricky and it takes a lot of faith and a lot of courage to, to get up the strength to extrovert this very personal material and put it into the world so that someone on Goodreads could say, ah, three stars, you know, yeah, <laughs> right. you know whatever. Right. Right. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> playing a therapist for the people in your lives, be it your wives or your wife or your best friend, or, you know, it can be tricky, you know, and it takes, you, you do need a support group. And so Alicia and I try to take turns doing that. And I think we're pretty successful for the most part. Do, do you want to say anything else to Jim who gave you three stars? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, probably a lot that I shouldn't say. <laughs> yeah, well, so, <laughs> let me stop you. Go ahead, Sean. So I think an, an interesting data point, and I, I, I got to admit, I don't always go to the acknowledgments, but I read I read through the acknowledgments for We Are the Light, and I really thought this was really interesting. Um when I was creatively blocked, magical thinking convinced me that to get unblocked, I had to work Gordon Lightfoot's beautiful song, If You Could Read My Mind, into the opening chapter of this novel. You didn't end up doing it, but you said you listened to the song thousands, I don't know, endlessly, thousands of times, yeah. endlessly. Literally, so what yeah. was it? So, I mean, it's just interesting if you could read my mind. I mean, so what was it about this song that helped you crack through? Well, I mean, I ultimately didn't. Well, I, I should say it. it, it I, I got into a loop where I was trying to work the song into the opening chapter, and I just couldn't do it. And that that loop went on for like a year, where I was writing the opening chapter over and over and over again. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I was really attracted to just the the feeling of the song, the tone of the song. It's kind of wistful. He uh-huh. wrote it when he was going through a divorce, and so of course, Lucas. Um, it's not a spoiler. Like he loses his wife on page one, you know, so there's this, this feeling of distance, there's this feeling of loneliness. And there's that line um, about, you know, the movie and, you know, the, the woman, um, you know, coming to save him and, you know, and all of that bit. So there was like a movie reference and, but honestly, I just heard it on the radio and I thought, this is, this is the song, you know, and and sometimes it happens that I wrote, um, a novel called Why You Came This Way, which was um, a line from, um, uh, I'm blanking on the song now, you understand now why you came this way. You know that song that, um, Southern Cross, the song Southern oh, Cross. Oh, sure, yeah, 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 yeah of yeah, course. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, of course, yeah. nobody gets it from my singing because yeah. it's so terrible. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> I'll cut that, I'll cut that. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I had written a novel that never was published. So I, I, I am very inspired by music. And yeah. so I'll, I'll get into um, the the feeling of a song, and I'll try to sometimes recreate that on the page. Yeah. Um, so I got to bring it back full circle. I, I got to ask you three canned questions at the end, and I know we're almost cool. time. Are you okay? You got a few more minutes? Yeah, I got a few minutes. Sure. Yeah. This okay. Is fun. 
Before we get to the questions, though, I got to come back to teachers. And I'm, you know, it sounds like you and your wife went to the same high school. You met in high school, right? No, we met in college. She she was just very young, a very young freshman. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we met at LaSalle University in North Philly. Okay. 1993. Um, Interesting. Well, I I was going to ask, and I can still ask this question, but were you you influenced to become a, a, a writer by some teacher who really left his or her mark on you? I wouldn't say there's one teacher, but along the way, I had teachers that kind of, um, I can't remember, it was in sixth or seventh grade, one of my teachers read a short story I had written to the class. And at the time, I was horrified. I really did not want her to do that. But it was this moment of being singled out and just kind of, um, you know, this is pretty good. And of course, like everyone in my class Weren't, you know, they just rolled their eyes and didn't even listen. <laughs> they would have not... given it a three on Goodreads. <laughs> yeah, right? three stars. Jim, Jim. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, and I remember um, there was a teacher in high school, Mrs. Griffith, who, uh, I, I, you know, she encouraged me to enter a poetry contest where you would go to a college and a professor would critique your poem. And I remember saying to her, like, do you have to type it up? And she's like, yeah, you have to type it. This is before, you know, laptops and things. And I was like, ah, I'm not typing that. And I remember I just kind of threw the, the poem away and she typed it up and sent it in. Oh, and wow. um, I went on the trip and I met the professor and he, he basically said, this poem is horrible. It's the worst thing ever. <laughs> but I remember um, just the act of her taking the time to type something up and going and getting critiqued which was not pleasant. The, the professor was quite arrogant and mm. probably not somebody who should interact with teenagers because he was he was pretty mean. But there was something about it that just felt like, ah, oh, you know, this feels right. And and I, I even remember, you know, because my my school wasn't a place that was really academic. You know, it was a bunch of blue collar kids and nobody really read the books, but I actually read the books in high school. Uh-huh. I remember reading Old Man the Sea or Tale of Two Cities or even Shakespeare and, and and asking my buddies, like, did you read this pretty good? And they're like, wait, you read that book? And <laughs> and realizing like I was kind of a freak in my neighborhood. But you know, I was like, I don't know, maybe this is for me. You know, I'm 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 enjoying this. It's weird. No one else is enjoying this but me, but I am. <laughs> So there were those moments. Um, I love it. Yeah. yeah. And I would always, I had this red notebook that I was always compulsively writing in. And, you know, there were moments when even in high school, I thought, I don't know, some of this stuff is good. And of course it it, it wasn't publishable. It wasn't good by, you know, any real metric, but to me, it felt, it made me come alive. You know, something was lit up inside of myself and and there was danger to it. I remember I didn't want anyone to read that red notebook, but I also kind of did want them to read uh-huh, it. So yeah, there's that yeah. danger. Um, and I often say to young writers that ask for advice and I'll say, write, write the thing that you're really afraid to write about. Like that's where the magic is. And I think that's what I was starting to do, you know, and even just the act of writing a poem in the neighborhood where I grew up was transgressive. You know, like there was, mm. you know, I I had uncles that said all kinds of awful things to me because I wrote that poem, you know, and things I can't even repeat. Um, But I wrote it anyway. And I think that's what makes you a writer. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Um, Super good. Yeah. It's always good to have a teacher who, 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 who makes you believe you're worth it too. Like that you've got something. Um, And again, it goes back to all the great teachers out there. So. Absolutely. 
Um, all right, Matthew, I'm going to let you go in just a few minutes, but these are three sort of like inside the actor studio questions. They are <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> um, what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self? I'm going to go with. You are worthy of receiving and giving love. You know, you are lovable. Amen. Uh, second question is, do you have a mantra in life or even a mantra these days? I think my mantra for most of my writing career was no one will outwork me. I don't think that was it. Did he freeze on you, Sean? Yeah. You know what it is? It's that Outer Banks internet right now. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Got you back. Hey. I think my internet at my house went out, and so I'm I'm streaming through my my phone. Oh shit! Yeah, that's that, impressive. It might it might be a little bit slower, but that happens here in the Outer Banks sometimes. I'm sorry. We just saying. No, that. that's okay. Yeah. We were just that's speculating okay. that that was the cause. Yeah, you guys just froze, and I I kept talking for a long time. <laughs> you <were> frozen. <laughs> then I realized. Now I'm just seeing a picture of, of no, yeah, Chris. I, I killed my camera just to. I, well, I didn't know it probably doesn't oh, matter. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think Matt. I think Matt's connection is back. Good. Strong. Yeah, I'm good. I'm strong. Well, we yeah, were just I, saying we had come so close, and we were gonna maybe just use that cutoff as an excuse to get you back on for another hour at some point. But uh, <laughs> well, we can do that. <laughs> but because uh, it's been so enjoyable. But let's let let. Where did we lose Matt? mantra? Right. Yeah, mantra. You said okay, you were so you didn't hear mantra. any of the mantra. Yeah, yeah, you got you to get okay. that. All right, so the mantra for most of my career was uh, no one will outwork me. And um, I think that was, it gave me a lot of fuel, but I don't know how healthy that was ultimately. And I think now my my mantra is maybe remember the mission, you know, to be conscious of why am I doing this and to try to be mission focused. Um, and so that, that's been the, the challenge recently. Do you, love, do, you do you have another book in the works right now? Did I did I see you sending a picture from the from the book you tour? Did. Yeah. yeah, so I'm working yeah. on another novel. Yeah, so I'm working on that now, and I'm also working on the screenplay for We Are the Light. Nice. Oh, we, we'll we, see. We expected we, that. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's such a cheesy question to ask, but like, who are we <laughs> going to try to get to play Lucas and and Eli and 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 Jill. is Carl going to be present? Yeah, like, yeah, who? yeah. So this is one that I can't really answer yeah. because right. the 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 director I'm working with is actually talking to people, so you you have to be careful. Yeah, for if, sure. If, if I say like, oh, this person's to play, and then we're going out to someone else, it would, it would not be a, a good yeah, situation. Totally. Yeah. So, but you guys can say, who do you see playing Lucas? I'm a flipper, and everyone he, always can. No, he asked me that, and I'm like, I, I'm not in tune enough with all the young. Well, Luke, Lucas is Lucas is in his forties. Forties, yeah, yeah. So. <clears throat> Man. <sighs> I'm glad that you don't have a ready answer because it means that yeah. you see my character as a full character. Yeah. And you're not. So people, anyone who reads Silver Linings now will not be, be able to not see uh, Bradley Cooper's face. You'll be unable to see anyone else's face, but Bradley right. and Jennifer. So right. I actually read Silver Lining, the book after I saw the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was fantastic. It's hard fantastic to unsee book. it. Yeah. Oh, thank I, you. I, 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 yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I felt like, Again, books always better than the movie, and this one won the Oscars. So if that Appreciate helps anyone, that. pick up the book. Yeah. 
Thank do you. So. Yeah. Well, and and I'm I'm just happy um, that 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 this will likely get made into a movie because yeah. uh, Sean was talking about how he was telling me about how he was crying at the end of the book the other night. We were it was a it was a just a, a rare night out for some of the men's group members, um, mm. and I think that you and I, Sean. We're telling like Pete and uh, Patrick. We, I mean, we must have talked about your book for probably yeah. twenty five minutes. Oh, I appreciate um, that. Thank you. So, yeah, so, yeah it, I'm I'm glad to, that we'll see it. Hopefully, get to the big screen. All right, last question, Matthew. What do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Wow. I th- I hope that people say that he kept trying you know, to, to become a better man. And he just never stopped trying. I think that's, that's something that I would like people to say. And also that, that he, that he was present. He was present for people. Um, I think those two things. Scott, I'm just sitting here thinking that we need to, we need to send the link to the father Himes episode to, to Matthew. I think he'd get a, he'd get a kick. I mean, you just basically talk, you just basically um, regurgitated two lessons that a priest of mine who taught me in college talked about with respect to to, to love. Um, And so anyway, I love that. That's beautiful. Um, Seems like you're trying, I was going to say maybe, uh, you know, your mantra could have been, you know, or, 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 or you'd hope that people say at your wake that he worked harder than everybody else. But then I thought, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so just to confirm the the movie is a done deal and it's, uh, it's and never it's in a progress. done deal. All it's, right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm collaborating. I'm at the beginning process of collaborating with the okay. very famous director, but okay. in Hollywood, nothing is ever a done deal until you see it on the screen. Um, yeah. So I've, I've, you know, we've had, I've had projects in the past of screenplay, director, cast, ready to go. And then at the last minute, they pull the plug. So it's getting a movie made is a miracle. Any movie that you see made is a lot of people put a tremendous amount of work. Even if it's a bad movie, it's still a miracle that it got made. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, you must've felt clueless though, back when Silver Linings Playbook was going through that stage of life though. Right. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't feel clueless because I didn't know enough to know that I was clueless. Yeah, and you know that night naivety is kind of nice. And right, you know, and I've worked in Hollywood. I've written screenplays. I've worked with directors and producers. You know, for years now, and you know, I worked quite infamously with Harvey Weinstein for a long time. Oh no, shit. Yeah, yeah. When Harvey went down, I had four projects going with him, and immediately yeah. all of them died. You know, yeah. off the board. Um, so uh, you, you learn how the sausage is made, you know, and it's, it's not pretty, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's a different game. And I, I think the silver linings ride was so magical because you, you don't know, you know, you don't know what's yeah. going on and you, you just, I was so young. Um, right. But, you know, getting control and um, getting into you know, the working realities of Hollywood is um, requires much different skills than a novelist has, you know, a novelist works alone in a room, you know, it's just you and your intuition. Yeah. I always say Hollywood is like, uh, you got a Ouija board and, you know, the planchette is there and there's, there's 50 people with a finger on it and you're all trying to spell a word <laughs> and, and not everybody's communicating. And so it's a miracle that, uh, and, and that could be very, 
it can be very frustrating. You know, when it comes together, it's wonderful. Um, and of course, you, you can meet really interesting people, but it's there's also uh, uh, so much money involved in Hollywood that right. the stakes are always so high and yeah. it's so competitive. And um, you know that that sometimes can can bring out the worst in people, um, as as we saw with Harvey. You know, and you know my my relationship with Harvey was, uh, you know, he was kind of fatherly with me you know of course i it was a telephone relationship i only met him in person one time um but you know it was it was also in hindsight very manipulative and um you know he got me to do things in some cases uh he pushed me with my writing in really wonderful ways but he also got me to do a lot of free things and a lot of you know mm -hmm. um, things that maybe uh i wouldn't have done you know, things like calling me up in the middle of vacation and demanding 14 pages in one day, you know, and then you just go and yeah. do it, you know, and just while yeah. your wife is fuming <laughs> because you're, you're right. giving up your vacation, um, things like that, you know, it's just, it's just wild. I, I think about the movie of the book, um, a we are the light and, you know, obviously the, it's a, it's a very timely Kind of, I mean, the traumatic event in the book is a very yeah. timely one, yeah. right? It's one, it's one we're sure. well aware of. And I'm curious, does 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 the event show up in the movie? Do you do you do you show it or don't you show it? I'm well, curious. You have to come you... to the movie and see. Well, no, I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm asking. I'm, I, I, well, you're not going to say. I'm curious, Chris. Do you show? Do you show it or do you not show it? That, that's a question that's, we're yeah. talking about. Very yeah, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I bet. Well, for what it's worth, and I know my vote counts for shit here, but um, <laughs> but I think that's really part of the beauty of 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 what you did with the book. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like you're you're not even offering this sort of almost unnecessary distraction to yeah. what's important. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I got one more question. I promise you. I'll well, I got like six, but I, I know. I, I, so <laughs> just, just, just before you go real quick, I just, I sure. just have to say that, that when he's pitching, um, let's just say the community members on, on the project, um, you know, first I'm thinking about just, you know, Hey, you got to face it. I mean, this, this back to the suffering stuff, I mean, it's kind of what he says to, to the community group, right? I mean, and I'm trying not to give it any way. Like, no, 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 you have to face it. And that's, yeah. and that's why it's so dramatic. And I'm like, wow, it's, I mean, it, it's so hard to talk about without giving specifics. But I just, I thought that was, um, he goes through these moments of clarity where he's just like, okay, I, I have to sell them on how, why this is going to be good for them to face you know, the worst tragedy of their lives, you know, in yeah. a way that's in your face. Right. I mean, yeah. The only way out is through. Yeah. 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 Feel to heal. Yeah. Okay. Here's yeah, really my last good. question. Really good. We're going right. to let you go, but yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that if you get to make another movie, Matthew, like I'm sure that, that hopefully the money will be great for you. The access will be great. No, right. would be good. But like, I'm curious about when you first sat in a theater, probably at the opening, maybe of of Silver Lines Playbook. Like, what was the what was the emotion or feeling that you had there that you're that you're jonesing for, that you're craving with um, with We Are the Light being turned into a film? Well, um, 
<laughs> the, the honest answer is that when I first saw the film of Silver Linings, it was in Robert De Niro's Black Box Theater in yeah. Tribeca, New York. Yeah. And I walk into the theater and the Weinstein reps are there. They're these young people, you know, everyone in Hollywood looks incredibly young. Um, and they said to me, Harvey really wants you to love this movie. And if you really, really love this movie and demonstrate that you really love this movie, he will send you on a media tour, but only if you really, really love the movie. Okay. And then I sat down to watch the movie and the Weinstein reps watched me watch the movie and were no. recording. <laughs> yeah. So it was well, like, it was like so much pressure. It, it was, it was so surreal and, and, you know, as an introvert, it was, I couldn't even process it in real time. I was, am I doing a performance here? What am I right. doing? It probably and, made it impossible to enjoy the movie. Yeah. And I, I think I, I mean, David Russell would hate that story because he, you know, he, he would want you just to watch the film and, yeah. um, yeah. and I, I don't think I ever got to watch that film just as a movie, unfortunately. Yeah. And uh, I'm very appreciative of David. David's movie and I, I I very much admire it, but it was such a complicated thing. And I think if I you know I'm writing the screenplay for this, I think it'll be it'll be similar. You know, um, and I, and in some ways it's that way with the novel too. Like when I write a, a novel, um, the way that I celebrate is that when I finish, I take two weeks and I don't show it to anyone. So the novel is just mine for two weeks. Uh. And then when I let other people read it, it's never mine again. Uh. And, you know, so if I, if I would go to read my old novels, they might be enjoyable in some way, but they're never quite as enjoyable as when it was just me in, in that novel alone in a room and it was still living inside of me. And so part of that process is taking these deeply introverted feelings and experiencing and extroverting them and in Jungian analysis we talk about something called the analytic third so like when i walk into a session my analysts would pour you know Jung was very big on alchemy so my analyst would metaphorically pour himself into the vessel and i pour myself in the vessel we become a third thing and so when you make a movie or you create a piece of art or you write a novel, it's the same. Like I pour myself into this book and then you read it and it becomes a third thing, right. you know, and then right. when someone else read it, it's a different thing, yeah. but it's never the same thing for me again, either, because now it's a million different things with a million different people. And yeah. so it's, it's almost so overwhelming when you get to the, the silver linings movie stage, it's people all over the world creating a third thing and you almost lose track of what it is for you because it's, it's these bits of you are all over being connected with other people, which is wonderful and beautiful, but it's never really the same as when it was just with you and you, you kind of have to let it go. And so sometimes people ask me, what is your favorite novel that you've ever written? And I always answer, it's the novel I'm working on now yeah, right. because I'm having this intimate experience. And then once I let it go, it's almost like a dream that fades and it becomes someone else's reality. And, and that's, that's wonderful. And as it should be, but I think, um, you know, watching those films and I've had two books that have been turned into movies and they're both very, surreal experiences they're wonderful experiences but you quickly learn that that experience is not for you it's for mm -hmm. everyone else mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah. such an interesting concept that third yeah. thing yeah 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 very young I, mean, I, I feel like that's where i was going when i was asking you earlier on about like the more you go out and talk about this book 
because it, it probably becomes a third thing too, right? Like, yeah, it does. Th- yeah. How does how does your relationship with it evolve? It's fascinating. I've never even thought about it in those terms, but yeah. Well, we're psyched for the movie. We're psyched for the next book. We got to go back and read the YA books. We haven't had a chance to do that yet. Yeah, so yeah we, we got a lot to do's from from this interview. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> more than we, we can have another with. conversation <laughs> later on. Yeah, I would love to. That'd be it's, great. It's yeah. been so much fun. Um, yeah, I've enjoyed I just it. Really love everything you're doing. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for having thanks me. Thanks for on. thanks for spending time with us. Yeah, it was it was time well spent. Thank you. All right, Peace. see you, Matthew. All, All right, right. bye bye. This is Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of If You've Come This Far. And this is Sean. Remember to check us out at menliving.org.